I'm going to continue our series on true spirituality, which I started in January. And uh, this series has got a little broken up now. Last week, uh, Pastor Ray made the big announcement there about our switch to Sunday services. And by the way, I've just, we've just been so blown away. Uh, and we just want to say appreciation to our church family. Uh, so many of you, again, making, and many of you here on Sunday morning, you, it maybe doesn't even affect you because you never went on Saturday night. Um, but uh, Pastor Ray, if you did not see the big announcement last week, we're giving away the CDs and DVDs for free. You, you can pick one up at the uh, Info Center. But he goes into the reasons why we're doing it, and uh, it's going to really help us uh, ease the burden on a lot of our young families and ease the burden on lots of our volunteers. But in addition to that, there's some huge things God's calling us to that, uh, that it's going to free us up to do uh, using the building on Saturdays and stuff for some church renewal and encounters and stuff like that. Hugely important. But I did want to say this. Some of you maybe are here today and you've already made the switch to Sunday mornings from Saturday nights. And uh, even though this is you know, best for us as a corporate body, we know that for some of you as individuals, this isn't what's best for you as an individual. And we've been just so blown away this past week, the emails and the phone calls and talking to people, just how mature people have been, uh, even people where this affects them negatively in their individual life, just embracing this. And you know what Philippians 2 says, true spirituality is, think putting others ahead of yourself. And I, we've just been so proud, it's amazing. I'm, I'm so pumped to be a part of this church family. And you know, one of the th- days as I was praying, uh, f- you know, about this whole thing and, and the move and, and, and some of the things God's calling our church to, uh, the word that the Lord, I felt the Lord gave me was practice. This is practice. You think when evil is crashing in on the church in the end times that we're going to be able to just do church the same all the time and never have change? Not a chance. And God's going to call us to big things. We're going to have to be adaptable and we're going to have to put others first. We're going to have to listen to his spirit and we're going to have to make huge sacrifices. And you guys have just risen to the challenge again and again. And uh, all of this, and, and don't think that God doesn't notice it. We, and we really appreciate it. But there's no question that God really appreciates it. And, uh, and he will bless you for that. Anyway, this series has gotten a little broken up. And next week, uh, uh, Alex Matala is here from Uganda. You don't want to miss it. Always phenomenal when he's out. And uh, he always says things that uh, we can't say because he's black and he's from Africa. So uh, I just love it when he's here and he just hammers down. It's great. And so he will be here next weekend. And so I, there is another message yet I want to preach in this series. But, uh, uh, but there's a couple things. Now. It, it won't happen now for a few weeks after this one. So the series is getting broken up. But just a quick review. True spirituality, we've been looking at this whole thing that, what, what does true spirituality look like? And it doesn't look what a lot of us think it looks like. And, uh, and for many of us, we carry around this huge burden of guilt and condemnation because we don't feel spiritual. But a big part of the problem is that we, we have the wrong picture of what true spirituality looks like. And so in the first message, part one, we looked at the whole thing of how true spirituality isn't measured by all the spiritual activity in your life. It's measured by how much you love. And then two weeks ago in part two, we looked at the fact that true spirituality isn't measured by how much stuff you don't do. It's measured by, you know, what parts of your life do you bring God into? And uh, today what I want to do is I want to look at 1 Corinthians 7 because another thing we started up two weeks ago is I wanted to look through in this series, I wanted to go through some of the tough passages of Scripture that people misinterpret. There's these passages of Scripture that we read, we read them, and there's teachers out there that teach them wrong, and they have zeal, but they teach them wrongly, and we get from these passages of Scripture, we get these 
false pictures of what spirituality looks like because we don't interpret them properly. And two weeks ago, we looked at, remember James 4.4, 4, uh, don't be a friend of the world. Whoever's a friend of the world is an enemy with God. And I know for many of us here, that's a passage that we just read over that and we just feel so guilty for ever enjoying anything in life. Is, isn't that true? And so we looked at what does James 4.4 4 mean? The other, another passage I want to talk about yet in this series, and so this one will be a couple weeks down the road yet, but I want to look at in the New Testament, in, in the Gospels particularly, Jesus makes some comments about having money that seem really negative. Like rich people, it's impossible for them to go to heaven. And, and, and you know, some comments that make it seem like everybody should give away all their money. And I know those passages bother a lot of us, and those passages have been preached wrongly many times. And I want to look at that. What, is, what does true spirituality look like when it comes to money? Or do we have to give it all away? Or, or can we love God and also have money? And so that I want to look at yet in this series as well. Um, but today what I want to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Many of you will probably already know what it is before I even get into it, but the moment we start to look at it, uh, you'll remember it because most of you, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you have read through this chapter before many times. And it's a famous chapter in Paul's writings. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul takes an entire chapter and to basically bash marriage. And he basically goes on and on and on for a whole chapter, and it sure looks like he's saying that it's better to be single. You can please God more. You can focus on God more. And you can do more ministry if you're single. And, it, and it's like this whole chapter that basically marriage is a distraction from God. And so people, and people have preached that many times. In fact, the Catholic Church, that's why it's 1 Corinthians 7 is why for 1,600 years all Catholic priests have to take a vow of celibacy. They can't get married if they want to serve God in the, in, in the church like that. And, uh, and so I, we just have to look at that passage today because as long as that passage is there, it's gonna, it's, and as long as we don't understand what Paul is trying to say there, it's going uh, to be like a thorn in our side promoting a false view of spirituality. And this series is all about true spirituality. So let's pray and then let's get into this. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord Jesus, first of all, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you love the creation that you've made I thank you, God, that following you and being truly spiritual, being a truly spiritual person is not bondage, it is freedom. And uh, Lord, I've been finding that even in studying and getting ready for this series. I love the comments that I'm getting from people as your Holy Spirit is really moving in people's lives and freeing them as they see what true spirituality really looks like. I pray that you would continue to do that work here this morning. And may we be able to have some fun with it as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7. If you have your Bible here, I would encourage you, you can just follow along in your Bible as well. It's going to all be on the PowerPoint. I always do that because many won't have their Bibles. Plus, I, I want to make sure that, you know, we all have, can look at the translation I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on. But we're going to basically go through huge chunks of this chapter now, 1 Corinthians 7. And so if you have your Bible, it's great. You can look ahead and you can kind of follow along as I'm going. Um, but let's just start in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay? So the Corinthians, we don't, we don't have the letter that they wrote to Paul. Okay? But they wrote Paul a letter, and in that letter there was a bunch of questions. We don't know what all the questions were, but throughout the letter to the Corinthians, he's answering some of these questions. Okay? So that's very important to, to note. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, we have to stop right there before we get any further. And I want you to notice in that underlying passage there, there are quotation marks. 
This is really super important. And in fact, if you have an NLT translation here today, uh, good for you. I'm not against the NLT translation. It's a very readable, wonderful translation for people for devotional reading. But I would encourage you, if you have an NLT translation here today, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians 7 and add in the quotation marks because they don't have them in there. And a lot of Christians miss the fact that there are quotation marks around it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. A lot of Christians, just they're just reading this passage, we're just firing through, and they just read this as something Paul is teaching. They just read this as the Holy Spirit is telling us that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And that's not, Paul is not teaching this. The Holy Spirit is not saying this. Paul is quoting back to the Corinthians something they wrote to him. Does that make sense? And that's really, really, really important. Paul is not saying it is good. He's not starting off chapter 7. Well, let's just, get, let's just cut right to the chase. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's not Paul saying this. This is Paul concerning the things about which you wrote, quoting back to them one of their questions. Okay, and this is hugely, hugely important because many Christians have this idea that sexu- sexuality and the sexual urge and sexual relationship, even within marriage, many Christians have this feeling like sex is kind of dirty and unspiritual, and that feeling and thinking gets fueled by uncareful readings of scriptures like this. And of course, uh, when I say that, I, I have to add in the caveat there, of course, we know that sex outside of marriage is sin, always. Premarital sex and adulterous sex and all that kind of stuff is definitely sin. But many Christians have this idea that sex itself is kind of unspiritual, and verses like this seem to fuel that. That's not what Paul's teaching here, and it's really important that you understand that. You know, when, when I was growing up, I grew up in uh, southern Ontario, and for those of you who are, who are new here, my dad is Pastor Ray, the, you know, the senior pastor here at South and, and our leader. Um, but uh, dad and our family, we planted a church I mean, dad and our family. He did the work when we came along. Um, so he planted a church, Faithfully Baptist Church in Woodside. You know, I can remember services where it was the six of us. We had four, four of us kids and then mom and dad and then two other people. I, I can still remember this. We had a, an ex-alcoholic and a pianist who came just because she felt sorry for us. But uh, that was church for me sometimes growing up. But anyway, so I grew up in southern Ontario with this church plant. And when, while we were growing up, there was this, this uh, huge movement that swept. It was all across the states. It was huge. And it was really big in southern Ontario as well. And, uh, and they were doing crusades and packing out stadiums and teaching seminars and lots of young people getting involved in this. And, and it was, you know, and, and at first lots of churches, and we were, we were pumped about it. Like, wow, people are getting fired up for God. This is amazing. And so we even went, you know, uh, and some of the people from our church went, uh, to some of these seminars, and people got excited about this, and God's doing this big movement. But as we got more and more into this movement, it was based on a whole lot of rules. Everything was about rules. We've got to get fired up about God. We've got to get separate from the world, and it all sounds so good. And then they had all kinds of rules. If you're really spiritual, and you're not one of those worldly Christians, then you'll never let your skirt get, you know, and they had, you know, how many inches above your knee your skirt could be. And they had how many inches, you know, your neckline could go down and all kinds of stuff. They had rules and rules and rules to separate the passionate, godly, spiritual people from the worldly people. And one of the things that they also taught in there, because they had rules for everything, is they said, you know, if you are a married person um, and if you want to be a spiritual person, you want to love God, then two weeks out of every month, you and your wife will not have uh, sexual relationships. 
And so they had rules for everything because they said, and, it's, and it all sounds so good, so you can focus more on God. They had all these rules so you could focus on God and be more passionate. And, and the interesting thing is uh, uh, we had friends from another church, and uh, this couple, and they had kids that uh, was our age, our kids' age and stuff, and so we hang, hung out, and, and, uh, and they, had their, the, they had, you know, great marriage and had for years and years. And uh, so mom and dad and them were, were good friends. And, and so sometime after this whole thing was happening, these seminars were going, these crusades were going, um, uh, their marriage started to suffer. And they'd always had a really good marriage. And so one time we were hanging out over there and, and the, the husband started to confide with dad and he started talking to him about how their marriage was starting to, to, to really struggle. And dad's going, oh, what, what in the world for? I mean, you guys had a great marriage for years and years. Why is your marriage suddenly struggling? And, uh, and he starts to probe a little bit and finds out that they have been following all these rules, including the, you know, two weeks out of a month rule. And dad said, well, that's your problem right there. Well, but aren't we supposed to do this so we can focus more on God? And dad's like, those are man-made rules. Okay? And they're rooted in people misunderstanding things like this and thinking that, you know, anything pleasurable or wonderful has to be, we got to tone that back so we can focus more on God. And I want to jump, actually, I want to jump out of this passage for just a second. We're going to go to Colossians 2, 20 to 23, and then we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 7. And I, I need an excuse to put Colossians 2, 20 to 23 in this series, because this, this passage is hugely important for true spirituality. I want to show you something uh, here that is super important. Paul says this in Colossians 2 verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, okay? So talking about human rules here, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So, throughout, and this has happened throughout church history. There's always people, zealots, and they want to be passionate for God, but in their pursuit of being passionate for God, they make up rules that are severe on the body and that look very spiritual. And now I want you to see what Paul says. They have, so they are promoting self-made religion and asceticism, which is to do without things and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, we have this human tendency to, and that's a, you know, a big part of what this series is about, we have this human tendency to make up all kinds of do's and don'ts to separate us from the worldly Christians and from the other people. And that kind of, they puff us up with pride because we don't do this and we don't do that. So if you were a really spiritual Christian, you would never listen to secular music. If you're a really spiritual Christian, you would never touch alcohol. If you're a really spiritual Christian, you won't do this. You won't watch TV. You won't do this. And we have these do's and don'ts. And Paul says you can have all the do's and don'ts you want in the world and still be a control freak. You can never dance. You can never listen to secular music. You can never touch a glass of wine. And you can still be a mean-spirited, controlling, selfish, nagging person. Isn't that true? So Paul says you can have all the do's and don'ts you want. It doesn't touch the, the hardness of the heart. Now, of course, when I'm saying this, I do want to say one thing here because when I come against rules, I'm not coming against God's rules. I'm talking about the man-made laws we add to these laws. The laws in here are wonderful. You know, do not murder, that's not legalism. Oh, you legalist. 
you know, do not lie. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat elderly people with respect. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Those are God laws, God's laws. And there are many promises in this book that if you study God's laws and you want to know God, you're going to study his laws and you, and you want to do his laws and his spirit fills you so you can obey his laws. When you obey his laws, those laws are life. In the Holy Spirit, when you obey his laws, those are life. What I'm talking about is the man-made ones where we add to these. Like, we don't have enough of those. So now we've got to add our own to kind of make ourselves be, we're the passionate bunch. We're the godly bunch. And Paul says the moment you add to these, these are wonderful, but the extras don't do nothing to quell the selfishness and the pride and the arrogance of the flesh. So that's hugely, hugely important. So you can abstain from all that stuff and you can not have a tattoo and you can not ever watch worldly entertainment and you can still be sinful, selfish, proud, and arrogant. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7 now. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul's just quoting to them now. He has, he's not saying his own thing. Now he's going to respond to this. Okay? Verse 2. But because of the tent... So now this, now this is Paul speaking. First is the Corinthians speaking, now it's Paul speaking. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul comes back and he says, you guys are teaching this and I say to you, you teach your man-made rules that it's good for people not to be married, it's good for them not to have sex because there was this kind of Greek strain of asceticism in the Corinthian church. Because in Greek philosophy, there was this huge strain of like, you gotta, if you abstain from especially sex and marriage, that's how you become spiritual. And this had infected the Corinthian church. And Paul says, that's what you guys think. What I think is, if you teach that, it's going to lead to sexual immorality. If you teach man-made rules as a part to God, as, you know, in addition to God's rules, it's actually going to lead to immorality. It's going to lead to problems. So I say a man should have his own wife. Okay? And of course, he's not teaching here that it's sin for a person to be single. Obviously not. Paul himself is single. But he, basically what he's saying is most men and most women should probably get married. It's just better that way. All right, let's keep going. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife for conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife, this could be a great memory verse. Hey, husbands, like you want your wives to memorize passage of scripture this week? I should have put that in the challenge for the end of the message. Memorize. Anyway. <laughs> the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Now, some people have also taken this passage to mean that you should regularly fast from sexual relations in your marriage, and that's not at all what Paul's teaching. He says, perhaps, like, if, you know, kind of, if you have to, if you think you should, um, then fine, but only do it for a short, limited time. Okay, it's not spiritual. See, we have this idea that sexual relationship within a marriage, that's not spiritual. Like there's, if we pray together, that's spiritual, but this over here isn't spiritual. And what Paul is, what we're seeing in Scripture over and over again in this series is everything that God made is good, it's spiritual. It is spiritual. And so he says, do not deprive one another, all right, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. Okay, now, we're going to skip ahead a few verses. We're going to go to verse 26 now, because it's this next section of 1 Corinthians 7 
where Paul makes a whole bunch of statements about marriage that basically make marriage look like a spiritual ball and chain. And, and they give lots of people misinterpret these passages and they just get a totally wrong picture of what God feels about marriage, family, and relationships in general. Okay? So verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. I'll just stop there for just a moment. I just have to mention something about divorce because it comes up several times in this passage and some of the other verses I don't have a chance to get to. But I want you to notice here, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Now, I'm not speaking here. If you're here today and you're already divorced, that's in the past. You're working through your stuff. I don't know what your reasons and maybe they were good. Fine. I'm not talking to here to people. So if you're here today, don't hear me condemning you that you got a divorce 10 years ago when you weren't living for the Lord or whatever. I'm not condemning you. I want to talk to people who are here in the present. I want to talk to people who are sitting here right now today and you are, you are feeling like you want to get a divorce or you are actually thinking about getting a divorce or you're sitting here this morning and you are planning to get a divorce or you are in the process of getting a divorce. Here's what I, I want to say to you and actually you can forget about emailing me after because this is what Paul is saying to you. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in God's eternal word. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're sitting there and you're thinking. You're here in church and you worship and you raise your hand. Worthy, worthy. That's why I'm not on the worship team, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> your hands are in the air and you're having this wonderful experience. And in your mind, you are planning to have a divorce. And God's word says, don't do it. You say, yeah, but... But, but Chris, you don't understand. My husband is really unspiritual. And he doesn't love God. And he doesn't encourage me to have my devotions. And he doesn't encourage me to go to church. He drags me down spiritually. And, and in fact, I even met this guy now at church who does encourage me spiritually. So, you know, I'm kind of falling in love with this guy and, and, I'm, and I just feel like I love God a lot more when I'm around him. Yuck! Yuck! That is disgusting. I'm serious. That is a, we have this false view of spirituality. You want to know what true spirituality is? Keep your promises even when it hurts. You made a vow before God. You said before God, till death do us part. And again, I'm not, I'm not ruling out the cases here. There are certain extreme cases there are certain extreme cases, and, and I won't get into all those, but there are extreme cases where, where you know, for just the good of, of someone or the family or safety, whatever, that people need to separate. That's, I, I'm not saying about that. But 90% of, you know, 98% of the divorces that happen even within the church have nothing to do with that. True spirituality is not, I'm going to leave the guy who's dragging me down spiritually so I can go with this guy that makes me feel good about going to church. True spirituality is you said before God, till death do us part. True spirituality is you keep your promises. That's what godliness looks like. True spirituality isn't a feeling somebody gives you. True spirituality is I'm going to stay with this guy even though he's hard to love, or I'm going to stay with this woman even though she seems to drag me down, and I'm going to pray for her, and I'm going to love her, and I'm going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's what, that's what God is happy with. That's true spirituality. So important. Let me tell you something else. There's another thing on this. This actually applies to so much more than divorce, but this is just my excuse to talk about it. It is always better to obey I want to say that again. It is always, always better to obey. Let me explain. 
Some people have this idea. And again, I'm just using, I'm just going to use divorce now, but this applies to all areas of life because we human beings, we have this wicked desire to, to, to disobey and not do what God wants us to do. And you and I hear people sometimes think, well, you know what? I'm just so unhappy in this marriage. I'm just going to, I'm going to get the divorce and go with this other person over here who I love and later on we'll make up with God and then everything will be fine because now I'll have the good marriage and I'll be forgiven. Okay, and this isn't, we don't just do this with divorce. We do this with all kinds of things. That's human wickedness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what God expressly does not want me to do, and I'm going to go over here, and then later we'll just confess it and get forgiven, and after that I have the best of both worlds because I'm forgiven and I have this great new relationship. I'm not in this one. Right? Galatians 6, 7 says, God cannot be mocked. Let me tell you something. It is always, always better to obey than disobey. Let me ask you something. Do you think, how many of you here think that God knows better than us what's good for us? Just raise your hand if you think that's true. How many of you think, well, just to get you to do one more, I know it's very hard to lift your hand into the air so early on a Sunday morning. Ooh, feel the burn. <laughs> how many of you think that not only does God know what's best for you, that he actually wants what's best for you. Raise your hand. Okay. So, we all agree here 100%. We all agree here 100% that God knows what's best for us. I mean, he's the creator of the universe and he sees into the future and he made you. Of course he knows what's best for you. And we know that God is love. That means that God always wants ultimately what's best for you. He knows what's best and he wants what's best. So let me ask you something. How could disobedience to what he wants ever work out for your best? How could it? It is not possible. There is no kind of disobedience you can do now today that 20 years from now you can look back and say, oh, I'm so glad I did that. I mean, that just worked out. God wanted me to stay in this drag of a marriage, and I got out and went to this one, and 20 years later, whoo, glad I made the right decision. God always, always knows what's best for you. And he always, always wants what's best for you. So that means if I disobey him today, there will never come a point in the future when I will look back and say that was the better decision to make. And you can't see the negative consequences to your life, to your kids, to your family, to your eternity. You can't see the, the, the consequences, but there are consequences. And so you may just think, I'm going to do what God doesn't want me to do. And it's not just divorce. In this business decision, in this decision, in that decision, I'm going to do it even though I think God doesn't want me to do it. Later on, he'll forgive me and it'll be fine. That will never work out better for you than just doing what God wants in the first place. Does that make sense? That was just a bit of a rabbit trail on it is always better to obey. All right. Let's keep going here. Are you free from a wife? Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And some of you are going, there's a whole bunch of single people going here, oh, don't read that in church. You've been skipping over 1 Corinthians 7 in your devotions for years already. All right, verse 28. See, I, I saw that one and I just got married and said sorry later and now it's worked out good for me, right? No. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Okay, wow, Paul, Woo. I mean, if you get married, you're going to have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that? Like, you're going to be happier if you don't get married? Interesting. Okay, verse 29, let's keep going here. 
This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Whoa! Wow! And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though, and I'm just reading just a big chunk here, because I want you just to see this, this uh, passage here in its fullness. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Well, that doesn't seem, I mean, that sure makes out marriage to be quite unspiritual. Like if you stayed single, you can focus your whole life on God. But if you get married, well, your spouse is a distraction. You can't actually think about God that much because you have to think about your spouse, right? And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So again and again, we just see this idea in this passage. Paul says again and again and again, seems to be saying that marriage is not good for you spiritually. Marriage is a distraction from God. Like we should be focusing our whole life on God and marriage and, and kind of family. I'll throw family in there as well. Marriage and, and family are a distraction from focusing your life on God. I'll just finish off this chapter now, just four more verses here. Paul says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So basically Paul's saying, I mean, if you have to, it's not sinful to get married, but if you have to absolutely do it, fine. Verse 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. I mean, he's a bit weak. Couldn't, couldn't keep the lust down, so he had to get married. And he who refrains from marriage, though, will do even better. All right. So what on earth are we going to do with 1 Corinthians 7? Well, I'm going to start sounding like a bit of a broken record here. But that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this message again, because I talked a bit about this two weeks ago. But I'm trying to teach you guys how to handle this thing maturely. Because you wouldn't believe how much wacky stuff, and 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the top ones on the list. Over the course of church history, the amount of wacky stuff that has been taught, and celibacy, and, and the priesthood there in the Catholic Church, and all kinds of crazy stuff has come out of 1 Corinthians 7. And there's this danger. People can take any chapter, or any verse, anywhere in the Bible, and they can make something out of it. And a thing, I talked about this two weeks ago, and I'm, and I'm purposely doing it again today. And I want to take some time on this, because I want to teach you how to handle this Word of God properly by the Spirit and by wisdom. If the only chapter in the Bible we had on marriage was 1 Corinthians 7, then we would have to say, yes, marriage is a spiritual ball and chain, and it's only for people who are weak in, in their lusts, and if you were strong spiritually, you shouldn't get married because marriage is a distraction from following the Lord. If all we had about marriage was 1 Corinthians 7, that is probably what we would end up having to say, but the truth of the matter is, that is not all we have in the Bible about it. So you don't build your view on marriage on just one passage. Everything in the Bible must be interpreted in terms of what does the rest of the Bible say. So before I even begin to try to interpret for you the context of why Paul is saying some of the things he's saying, and I will show you that in just a, a, a little bit, I just first have to show you that you have to throw out this idea that 1 Corinthians 7 is, is really, you know, 
um, insulting on marriage because we know from other places in the Bible that God loves marriage. And, and the thing is, we have to always remember, and I said this two weeks ago, everything in the Bible must be interpreted in terms of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 give us the context for everything because Genesis 1 and 2 tells us about the beginning. So let's go to the beginning and let's look at because So let's leave 1 Corinthians 7 on a shelf because 1 Corinthians 7 seems to be saying that marriage is a spiritual ball and chain. Um, but I want to see what does the rest of the Bible say. And once we know what the rest of the Bible says, then we can safely go back to 1 Corinthians 7 and say, I know you're not saying this. And we can figure out what it's saying. Does that make sense? So Genesis 2. Let's go and look at it. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant, this is verse 5, of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and a man became a living creature. Okay, the Lord God took the man. Now, I want you to notice this first thing God does with him, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And, and really important here, um, so God, he breathes life into Adam. And I mean, if you didn't know this passage, what would you guess would be the first thing God would have Adam doing. Most of us think he got, you know, Adam would be singing to God. And I want you to notice, the first thing God has Adam do is not sing to him. He says, go, go and do some work. Go trim some hedges. Go you know, plant some seeds. I don't know what. Go work the land. Go do whatever. You know, make things good and, and work it and grow some food and take care of things and organize things. The first thing God does is put him to work. And that tells us something huge about work. Okay? A lot of people today... Yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to come back to that work idea. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, now I have to stop. Okay, it is not good. This is the first and only not good in the creation story. That's the first and only not good. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and the first, you know, uh, 17 verses of chapter 2, everything is good, 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 good. God created the earth, it's good. God created light, it's good. God created the sun and the moon, they're good. God created Adam, Adam is good. Work is good. Everything is good. Everything's going great. Everything. Good, good, good. Genesis 1.31, very good. It's all good. And then we have the first and only not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, we know some of these stories so well that we just assume a whole bunch of things. And so we just keep reading. Oh yeah, it's not good. God's about to create a wife, and, and, and this is all about marriage, blah, blah, blah. And we, we totally, we, we just assume things. And I, I want you to stop and think for a moment if you didn't know how this story was supposed to end. Because it's very interesting that God says it's not good that he's not alone. Because if you think about it, technically speaking, Adam was not alone. You ever think about that? Adam wasn't alone. God and Adam had a wonderful relationship together, and they were good. I mean, in Genesis Chapter 3, we see that God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. So God was physically much more present on the earth in the early days after creation than he is now. Adam and God met together. You read in chapter 2, there's a bunch of other verses I don't get time to. When Adam, you know, names the animals, we all know that Adam named the animals. If you actually read the passage, it says God brought to him the animals and he named them. Think about that. Adam and God were working side by side. God brings over a little baby hippo. What do you want to call this one? Hippo. Well, it wasn't English. Uh, I don't know, how, but whatever, right? And he brings over a little ostrich. Who, what do you want to call this one, ostrich? And God and Adam are working together. God is bringing him this stuff. God is showing him the trees. You can eat from all of these, but you can't eat from that one. 
God is physically there with Adam. They walk together in the garden. He's there. They're working together. And uh, and what a picture that is, by the way, getting to work with God. Wow. Like, Like Jesus is giving you instructions, Adam, and you get to do them, and he compliments you, and he says, do it this way, don't do it that way. They're working together. Adam is not alone. He's with God. He knows God. Now, this should just blow our minds a little bit because when we read this story, we always just think, oh yeah, Adam is all by himself on the earth. No, the story is showing us Adam is not all alone on the earth. He's with God. Now, this brings up a problem because we tend to over-spiritualize things when it comes to our relationship with God. And we say things like, you know, all you need is a relationship with Jesus. Now, I, I, you know, I, I totally get, you know, that is, it's, it's so true. Yes, Jesus is is everything. To, to know him is life. To not to know him is death. He is just, he, it's, but we have this tendency, and it, that's what this message is about, that it's all about God, and we start to view people as getting in the way of our relationship with God. And so we read 1 Corinthians 7, it's like, yeah, you know, loving my wife is getting in the, in the way of me doing what's really important, and that is focusing on God. And we almost like view human relationships and getting a real job and some of these things. These things are hindrances to us of the really important work, which is focusing on the Lord. And what we see here, that's why Genesis 2 is so profound. Because what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is if all God wanted from Adam was for Adam to just look at him and sing to him and pray to him all day, he could have had it right there at the beginning. Genesis 2 is so profound. We get to see the heart of God. What does God want from us? Genesis 2, we can see. If all God wanted from you was all day long just to gaze on his face and to sing to him and worship him and pray, and everything else you do is just a distraction from that, he could have had it with Adam. He could have created Adam, breathed life into him, and then said, now sing to me all day long. Sing, son. Come on. More sing. More looking at me. Adam starts to look over there. Look at that nice tree. That! Look at me and pray to me, right? And that is not what God does. What is the first thing he does? Breathes life in him and says, get to work. Therefore, the heart of God is that there's more to worship than just singing and praying to him, as important as those things are. And I'll get to that in just a second. They are hugely important. But when work is not a distraction from loving God, work is part of loving God. And having a wife and having relationships is not a distraction from the really important thing of loving God. It's part of loving God. And we see this in Genesis 2. God said it's not good for man to be alone. Adam wasn't alone. He just didn't have human companionship. God is saying it's not good. Even though he has a great relationship with me, it's, he's incomplete unless he's in relationship with other human beings too. Hugely important. Hugely. So verse 21, let's just finish this thing off here. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. So we have our first uh, surgery under anesthetic here. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is, again, here's my point. I'm just driving this home now. This whole thing of marriage and stuff, God never had to make that. He did it because he wanted it. He could have had 
only worship and prayer from Adam. He didn't want only worship and prayer from Adam. He wanted Adam to worship him by working, and he wanted Adam to worship him by loving his wife and having kids. In another verse, it says, now I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Hugely important. There is more to loving God than just prayer. Now again, prayer is hugely important. My point is, prayer is not the goal. See, all throughout church history, there's always these two ditches, and people can fall into one of two extremes. And at any point in church history, there's always people falling into one or the other. And, And the one ditch, probably more people fall into this one, I'm quite sure about it, at least in our day and age. The one ditch is just worldliness. Lots of Christians, they, they, you know, they, you know, they have an experience with God at some point in their life, and then they start going to church, or they just grow up this way, and they, they believe in Jesus in their head, and, and, but the rest of them, they don't care about Jesus at all. They come to church every week, but the, re, but the rest of the weeks, you know, six out of seven days, they don't think about God. They don't listen for his voice. Their desire is not to serve him. They just live for themselves. They're just worldly Christians. On Judgment Day, many people will be shocked to find out that they were never saved. They never knew Jesus. They never loved him. Okay? That's, that's one group. Lots of people go there. That, that's not a good one. But there's, there's another ditch. And I think it's a smaller group of Christians that goes into this one. But the group of Christians that goes into this one makes everyone else feel guilty. And these are the ones that I call the zealots. And they're good people often. They're people that want to follow God. They don't want to be worldly people. And in their reaction against this, they're like, there's got to be something different than this. And they're right. They go over to here and they think the only thing in life is worship, prayer, study your Bible all day long. And, and many of us never go into that ditch, but we feel bad in the middle for not going into that ditch because we think that's if we really love God, that's where we would go. And the point here that I'm making is if God had wanted that, he could have gotten Adam doing it right at the beginning. God wanted Adam to live life. And life, we can't separate out prayer and worship from work and marriage because God wants worship from us in different ways. Now, you say, well, how is prayer important? Prayer is important in that prayer is the springboard into turning the rest of your life into worship. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray. Oh, someone who doesn't pray is spiritually dead. How can you have a relationship with God if you never talk to him? If you don't pray, you're spiritually dead. If my body doesn't breathe, it's dead. If I don't talk to God, I don't have a relationship with him. But prayer is not the goal of your spiritual life. It's the springboard into spiritual life. So you get up in the morning and you spend your first moments with God and you're quiet with him and you let him speak to you and you worship him and you love him. And out of that place of prayer, out of that place of connecting to God, now you go into your workplace and you carry out the tasks and the assignments and the adventure and the idea, Holy Spirit ideas he gave you while you were in prayer and you turn your job into an act of worship. And you go into prayer early in the morning and you give your first thoughts to God and you meditate on his word and you let him soften your heart because our human hearts get hard every day. I mean, if you, if you leave, you know, your crayons or I don't know what in, in the sun, you know, they can get all hard. Actually, I think they get melted. That's not a good analogy. We'll just leave it alone. <laughs> but you know, some stuff, you leave it in the sun, it gets hard. I don't know what kind of stuff, but I know what happens. Human life will just do that to your heart every day. Every day, human life will harden your heart. So in the morning, you get up again, and you soften it in the presence of Jesus. But you don't stay there, because Jesus doesn't just want you to sit there. 
You soften your heart in his presence and then you go and you love your wife and you love your kids and you love your husband with his love. You see, that's spirituality. But relationships and jobs are not distractions from loving God. They're part of loving God. Hugely, hugely important. And this is why the whole Bible speaks extremely positive about marriage and children and work. Let me just read you a couple here. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Psalm 127, 3-5. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. They're not a distraction. They're not a hindrance to your spiritual life. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And we can look at many more. The Bible is very, 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 very clear that marriage does not pull you down spiritually. And kids don't pull you down spiritually. So now we have to go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Because now I've shown you what the Bible says. You can't take 1 Corinthians by itself and preach something that the rest of the Bible is not saying. So what does 1 Corinthians 7 then mean, right? What are we to do with 1 Corinthians 7? Let's go back there. On the positive side, I want to just start by just briefly reviewing. On the positive side, Paul clearly affirms in 1 Corinthians 7 that marriage is not a sin. And he does this four or five or six times. I just have a couple of verses I'll throw up there. Uh, From verse 2. Uh, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let the married is no sin. So I just want to show you that, you know, 1 Corinthians 7, he does clearly teach that it's not a sin. Okay, that's on the positive side. But on the negative side, the tone is, The tone of 1 Corinthians 7 is, it's better if you don't get married. So what are we to do with that? What are we to do with that? Well, the first question we have to answer is, what did the other spiritual giants of the New Testament do? I mean, if, if, because Paul didn't get married, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says he, you know, he was so much ministry he could do by not being married. And if we look in the rest of the New Testament, and all the rest of the spiritual giants in the New Testament, the apostles, and, you know, Peter, and Jesus' brothers, and all the church leaders, James and Jude, if, if none of them got married too, then we could say, well, maybe I guess in the New Testament times, it is better not to get married, okay? But in fact, we actually find the exact opposite. And Paul himself gives us a clue. Paul himself tells us what the marital status is of all the other spiritual giants of the New Testament. He tells it to us in 1 Corinthians 9, just two chapters after 7. I want to show this to you. He says this, 1 Corinthians 9, 3 to 5, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, speaking of Peter. So will you look at that? The, what, what did the spiritual giants of the New Testament do? We're talking Peter, James, John. You remember the disciple Jesus loved? Uh, all the rest of the disciples, Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, who led the church in Jerusalem. These guys were some of the most Holy Spirit, on fire for Jesus people in all of history. They were incredibly effective in ministry. Uh, the Holy Spirit, I mean, it was the Holy Spirit working through them. But these are the guys who, who led the church that exploded in the book of Acts. And guess what? All of them were married. They all had families. Paul's the only one who doesn't. Well, Paul and a couple, Barnabas, Paul and a couple others perhaps. But almost all 
of the early church leaders were married and had families. So again, this idea that you can preach 1 Corinthians 7 to say that in order to be effective, you should be single and that marriage will keep you from being as effective as you should be is out the window again because the vast majority of the most incredible, powerful men of the Spirit of all time were all married and had families. So again, okay, wow. Well, what does 1 Corinthians 7 mean? Well, now let's talk a little bit about context because here's the thing you have to understand about context. What is Paul speaking out of? I mean, if the rest of the apostles are all married and they're doing great things for God and they love God and they're all dying for Jesus and being persecuted for Jesus and they're married, obviously marriage doesn't keep you from being effective. Marriage doesn't keep you from focusing on God. Paul's like the only one who isn't married or there's just very few of them who aren't married. So why is Paul talking about marriage in this way? Okay, context, context, context. In Paul's day, here's what you have to know. And the moment you know this little truth, a whole bunch of things Paul says about marriage throughout his letters just start to fall into place. In Paul's day in Jewish culture, the Jews had lifted up marriage. They, they so believed in marriage. They so thought marriage was important that they had actually, in our culture, we undercut marriage. We, you know, we're constantly, you know, in our culture, people are not getting married. Marri- you know, marriage is, is not good, and people are shacking up together and divorcing, and marriage is sort of undervalued and degraded. In the Jewish culture, they actually went the other way, and if anything, they overemphasized marriage. In Jewish culture, uh, marriage was so important that they actually considered it almost sinful. It was shameful and almost sinful for a Jewish man to not be married and have kids. In fact, I looked up some commentaries this week, and they actually quoted a famous rabbi in Paul's day. A famous rabbi in Paul's day who compared a Jewish man who doesn't get married to a murderer. Okay, like they kind of, they went, whoo, over to here. Okay, we were, way, we're on this side. They were on this side. They considered it sinful, breaking God's commands to not be married. And so they didn't see it legitimate at all, at all about singleness. Well, now you're going to start to understand Paul, what Paul is dealing with when he's writing his letters. Because over and over and over again, when Paul is writing his letters, whenever the topic of marriage, of marriage comes up, you'll notice that Paul is a little bit defensive. And the reason is because he is. He has to defend his ministry because he's not married. And so all of his Jewish readers and critics are looking at this thing and going, this is kind of weird. Paul's not married. How can he be godly? Like, what's the matter with him? And Paul, what Paul is doing in his letters, and and the thing you have to realize about his letters too is there's always two sides of the coin. See, the Jewish influence was huge in all the churches, even the Gentile churches like the Corinthians. In most of these cities, the first Christians in those churches were Jews that lived in that city. And so when you're reading the book of Romans and you're reading Galatians and you're reading Corinthians, you're going to notice something. Paul is constantly flipping between two things. He's sometimes talking to Gentile thinkers and Greek thinkers, and then in the same chapter, he'll flip over and he'll have to talk to Jewish thinkers because he's got two sets of people in most of these churches. And the Jews are critical of him for some things, and the, and the Greeks are critical of him for other things, and he has to answer both. So at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, he talks to this streak of Greek asceticism where they are starting to teach legalism. It's better for, just for a man to never have sexual relations with a woman. And he says, hey, get off it, that no. Then he flips over on the other side now, and he has to raise up the legitimacy of singleness. That singleness isn't a sin. 
And he has to lift up his own ministry and say, what I'm doing is legitimate. And singleness is actually a calling. And God can use people who are single. So 1 Corinthians 7. Now, of course, when you are selling, if you are in a culture if you're in a Jewish culture and you're speaking to Jews who believe marriage is the only way and now you have to sell singleness to them, that's not the place where you're going to make a list of all the positive points about marriage, is it? Like if Paul had to do that, chapter 7 would be, you know, half the book long. I've got to make a good point about marriage and I've got to make this about singleness. No, and so Paul doesn't do that. When we sell something, Paul is passionate. I was called to be single. It's a gift. It's a calling. And there are many things I can do that I couldn't do if I was married. And so he sells it by the power of the Spirit. And so, but we just take the past and we read and go, oh, Paul hates marriage. Not a chance. Look at the rest of your Bible. Not a chance. And so he goes and he lifts up the legitimacy of singleness. That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 7. Let me just show you uh, a couple places here. Uh, for example, verses 6 and 7, Paul says that singleness is a gift from God. You could also call it a calling. He says this, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. That's single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What he's saying is, some people are called to be single, some are called to be married. That's called balance. There wasn't balance in the culture where he was in. He's trying to bring balance. Hugely important. Later on, he makes the point that if you are married, you won't be able to focus on the Lord and you won't be able to do all the things that you can do if you're single. And again, he's speaking from his own experience. Think about Paul's life. What kind of a husband and father would he have been? He was constantly on the road. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was thrown into prison. He was all over the place. He was hated everywhere. Um, He would have been a terrible husband and father. It would have been a miserable life for his family and for him if he had been married. Isn't that true? See, there are things, there are callings, and there are situations when singleness is better than marriage. And there are other callings and situations when marriage is better than singleness. Both are legitimate. And so Paul is hitting over here. There's lots of things you can do when you're single that you can't do married, and he's right. But we don't have to read it or teach it or feel guilty about investing in our marriages and family because the Bible says that's all from God. And we can worship God with our marriages and with our families as well. Hugely, hugely important. 1 Corinthians 7 must be read within the context of Paul is raising up the legitimacy of singleness to a culture that didn't view it as being legitimate. He's not putting down marriage. True spirituality means that whatever station of life you're in, you leverage it for God. So if you're single, you use your singleness for God. If you're married, you use your marriage for God. If you have kids, you use your kids for God. If you have a bad marriage, you bring God into that marriage. Whatever, that's true spirituality. Whatever station of life you're at, you bring God into it and you use that station of life to glorify God. True spirituality, you can honor God and serve God with your whole life no matter whether you have little kids, big kids, no kids, a bad spouse, a good spouse, or no spouse. And this is the message of 1 Corinthians 7. I want to show you this. Paul says this in verse 20 and 21. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called, like to Jesus? Don't be concerned about it. Then, then, then bring God's glory into your slavery. And of course, if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. If you're in a bad marriage here today, the way out is not divorce. 
The way out is bring God in. And if you're single here today, maybe you're just a young person and the only reason you're single is you just haven't had a chance to get married yet. Um, that's great. I'm, we're not talking about, but where you're at right now, you're not married yet. Leverage it for God. And if you're long-term single, leverage it for God. Don't compare your life to your married friends and say, well, they don't do this and they don't do that and they don't do this. When Paul was single, he did a whole bunch of things that none of us married people could ever do. You should do the same. And if you have a good marriage and if you have lots of kids and if you have tiny little kids, sometimes moms with tiny little kids think, I can't, how can I serve God? Well, I don't know how, be creative, but bring God in to that stage of your life too. Whatever station you're in, you bring God into it. That's true spirituality. So I want to leave you with this challenge. I have three. There's only the third one that doesn't fit on there. But, uh, so I'll talk to you about that after. But if you're a married person here this week, uh, I would challenge you to ask God three questions. And again, so many people, they, uh, they say to me, you know, Chris, how do you, how do you know if you're hearing God? Um, and again, life is just so simple in my head. If, if a good thought comes to your, to your mind, it's God. Do it, okay? People make it all complicated. Well, how do I know if it's God? How do I know if it's the Holy Spirit? If it's a good idea, do it. And say you heard God. Good enough. He's going to work through your thoughts, okay? How can I bring you more into my marriage and family? Ask God that. Another reason why people don't hear God is they don't ask Him the right questions. Ask Him a question like that. How can I bring you more into my marriage and family? I guarantee you thoughts are going to start coming into your head. How can I bring you more into my marriage and family? How can I serve you more with my marriage and family. You might have three little kids and you, you can hardly sleep at night and they're nuts because you, you had them way too close together. <laughs> Me and LaDawn, we spread them out a bit more. Smart. And you think, oh, how can I serve God? I can't come into the church. There's other things you can do for God with those kids and to those kids. So how can I serve you more with my marriage and family? And, and what's one thing I can begin doing to better please you in my marriage, my family. Oh, God's going to speak to you about that. If you're single here, here's two questions you can ask God this week. How can I leverage my singleness to better serve God and advance his kingdom? If you're single, you, 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 don't live like a married person. Don't use that as an excuse. You have, you, have, uh, you have ways of serving that a married person couldn't do. Leverage that for God. And what kingdom purposes are you calling me to? And now there's one third one up there, and this is for you if you are thinking of getting a divorce right now. My challenge to you would be this. Make an appointment with Pastor Tim Ryan. Just make an appointment with him. And because you might say, I'm one of those extreme cases where, where I need to get divorced because it's whatever. Okay, okay. You think that you're one of the extreme cases? Then you don't, you don't have to be afraid. You can go to Pastor Tim, and if you are one of those cases, he can affirm you in that. He can pray with you, and he can walk with you in that. But probably in many cases, you're going to find that your reasons, you're self-deceived about your reasons. And seeing a pastor, rather than just barreling ahead and thinking you're making the right decision, might save you from a lot of pain and grief down the road. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Those, if you didn't finish writing down the challenge, they're going to come up on the side screens again after the, the final song. But let's just pray. Lord Jesus, first of all, I want to just thank you I thank you that you did not just give us 1 Corinthians 7. It's a wonderful passage that legitimizes singleness. So I thank you for the chapter. But I thank you that you didn't just give us that chapter. I thank you that you gave us the whole counsel of God. You gave us Genesis through Revelation and you are a good God. Thank you that marriage and relationships and work are not a distraction from the important 
from the important work of loving you. They are part of the important work of loving you. Help us, Jesus. That, I mean, it's just such a radical concept to actually apply to our lives. Help me in my family. Help us as a church body to be able to turn our work and our families and our relationships all into acts of worship to you. And I thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen.